Thanks very much, Gareth. Um, it may be a short reading. Doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon, though. So uh, anyone thinking otherwise, just so you know. Um, let's pray as we uh, look at the Lord's words together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you. Every week we come Sunday by Sunday. We come as needy people, needing to be met by you, needing to be built up, needing to be nourished by you. And we thank you that as we look at your word, those are the kind of things that you're doing. Please help us to experience your powerful work within us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before, uh, before I went to uh, university, I had a, a kind of a gap year working for a Christian charity uh, called The Oaks up in Sheffield. And, and the idea was we were renovating an old Georgian mansion, turning it into this um, children's kind of Christian activity center. Anyway, the, the guy who was uh, leading the whole thing was a fantastic guy called, uh, called Dan. But when it came to pastoral care, he only really had one, one solution. Okay, let's go for a run. So if you, you, you went to see Dan, there's about 15 of us, and, and all of us were young, and we'd go to see him, we'd have all our little problems, and, and look, Dan, I'm struggling spiritually. He'd say, look, he'd look at us, and he'd say, look, I think what you need to do is put your trainers on and go for a run. That's what you need to do. Or, or Dan, I'm struggling with someone else on the team. I find them very annoying. And he'd think about it, and, and, and you kind of consider all the different options. You want to, you know, what about their perspective, your perspective? You know, lots to kind of work through, but he'd just say, look, Put your trainers on, go for a run. The only variation would be how long the run should be, depending on the, the extent of, of the problem. And you could always tell when someone had met with Dan because they'd be stretching and libbering up with their trainers on, ready, ready to go for that run. It's a little bit like that old joke, isn't it? Give someone a hammer and everything looks like a nail. But whatever the problem, there's one solution, one approach. Whack it with a hammer, go for a run. And sometimes we can think, look, maybe, maybe God is a little bit like that. Whatever the problem, whatever we're facing in life, whatever the issue is, we come to church. We sit and we listen. And God just seems to say the same thing to us. Repent. Believe. Trust the gospel. My son has died for you. But that's, if that's the impression that you have of God then that's my problem. The idea that God comes to us with just one solution or comes to us in just one kind of manner, one kind of status of being. Because Jesus isn't like that. We're looking at this book, Revelation, and we've said already that Revelation is written to these Christians who are caught in the middle. On the one side, Rome is trying to get them to compromise their faith, trust Jesus, that's fine. We've also got to worship our gods. On the other side, the, the, the kind of Jews are, are trying to say, look, give up your faith. Turn away from Christ. Come back to the true religion. Apostatize. And these Christians are caught in the middle. And it's hard and it's tough. And Jesus comes to his people. And these seven letters that we're looking at is what Jesus says to these seven churches. It's him coming to them. And the thing that you spot is that he comes to these churches differently depending on what their needs are. Each letter, as you look at the letter, starts with a description of Jesus. So he comes to the church in Ephesus that we saw last time we were in Revelation. He comes as the Christ who causes churches to flourish or fade. He holds the stars in his hands. He, he walks amongst the lampstands, the churches. He causes churches to, to flourish or fade. 
to Smyrna, where we're now. He comes as the Christ who is the overcomer of death. To Pergamum, going to be there next week. He comes as the Christ whose words are powerful. To Thyatira, he comes as the Christ whose eyes burn with justice and love, and so on. Jesus does not only have a hammer. He comes to us and he meets us however we need him, Sunday by Sunday. That's what he's doing. So sometimes he comes with strong words, wake up, turn back, stop what you're doing. Sometimes he comes with words that stretch us. Think deeply about these truths I am telling you. They are beautiful. They are rich. Think deeply. Sometimes he comes as the giver of life. Sometimes he comes as the king of heaven and earth, demanding loyalty and obedience. Sometimes he comes as the lover of our souls. Of course, Jesus is all of those things all of the time. But he might well emphasize one aspect of his character, his being, his nature, depending on what our needs are. And for Smyrna, how does Jesus come to this church? What aspect of his character, his nature, his work does he emphasize? Verse 8, he comes as the first and the last, or the beginning and the end, the one who is the overcomer of death. And that is just what this little church needs to hear. I'm going to think about that. So first of all, we need to see what Jesus sees. We need to see what Jesus sees. Jesus' opening words to the church in, in Smyrna are, I know. That's how he actually opens all of his uh, letters. He, he knows. I, I know. I see. And of course, we thought about it. Those, those words could make, make you feel uneasy, couldn't they? You've got a guilty conscience about something and someone says to you, look, I know, immediately you're feeling a little uneasy. But sometimes when someone says, I know, it's precious. And that's how it is for the Christians in Smyrna. Jesus says, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. These Christians are facing life at its hardest because they follow Christ. They are losing their reputation, that's slander. They're losing their wealth. And Jesus says, I know. Jesus, we're suffering for you. Jesus, we're losing everything because we stand by you. Jesus, we're dying for you. And he says, I know. He's not indifferent. He's not unaware. We we, we hate it, don't we, when our hard work, when our sacrifice goes unnoticed. Maybe we shouldn't, but we want people to appreciate, to notice. At work, you stay late, you slave away to meet some deadline, and not a word of thanks, nothing. At home, you pour yourself out for the children, you provide for them, you discipline them, you ferry them around to all these crazy different things that they want to be part of. You just want a little thank you, but, but nothing. Jesus is different. I know. Every loss we experience because we bear the name of Christ, every time we quietly endure hardships for Christ, every time we choose obedience to Christ and suffer because of it, every time we we quietly battle with sinful desires because we love Christ, he says, I know. I see it all. I see it all. 
he sees something else as well. Something that we have a habit of missing. Yes, he sees the, the affliction, he sees the slander, he sees the poverty that's hitting these Christians in Smyrna. And we'd see that, wouldn't we? You know, we're really good at seeing our circumstances. We're good at seeing the hardship and the trouble and the pain and the sadness and the setbacks. We don't need any help seeing those kind of things. But look what else Jesus sees. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Jesus sees the true status of the Christians in Smyrna. You are rich. We must see past our circumstances and see what Jesus sees. We are rich. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul writes, You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Christian, you are rich. You have been given abundant mercy, abounding grace, clothed in the priceless garments of Christ, his righteousness, his perfection, his worth. You are rich. Or 1 Peter 1 verse 4, Peter writes, You have been born again into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Or Paul, again, in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus will belong to us, the heavens and the earth, the nations, a place at the table with our Father. It doesn't always look like it, does it? That the circumstances don't always suggest it, but Christians, you are rich. So rich. Imagine two people standing side by side in town. One is dressed in the finest clothes, nice shoes, clearly, apparently wealthy. And the other looks unimpressive, cheap clothes, cheap shoes. Both set off walking through Winchester The one wearing expensive clothes and fine shoes trudges his way through town. And two weeks later, he's still walking. His expensive clothes are in tatters and his fine shoes are worn through. This man has no home, nowhere to go. And then the other man, nothing impressive to look at, cheap clothes, and he sets off, but there is a bounce in his walk. He's whistling. It starts raining, the wind gets up, he is soaked through, but still he whistles. There is a smile on his face. Because as the darkness closes in, he can see the lights of his home. You can imagine the welcome, the warm cup of tea. As we walk through life, we are the second man. We may not have much, We may not be impressive in the world's eyes. We may face wind and rain, losses after loss, but we are rich. We have a home to go to, a welcome to look forward to, new clothes to put on, the embrace of a father who loves us, a seat at his table and a feast to enjoy. See what Jesus sees. He doesn't just see our losses. He does see those. He knows about them. But he also sees our riches. 
And Jesus doesn't only see the Christian correctly. He also sees their opponents clearly as well. Verse 9, he says, I I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. You see, for these Christians in Smyrna, most of the heat that they faced, the reason they were losing their wealth and their reputation, came from this Jewish community. And the Jews understandably thought of themselves as the true people of God. In the Old Testament, out of all the nations, God chose them. But from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, they have been opposed to Jesus and all who follow him. We are the true people of God. Not Jesus, not those who follow Jesus. But Jesus sees them correctly. They are really a synagogue of Satan. That's strong, isn't it? That's really strong. That they're in league with Satan. I've got to be careful here. Jesus is clearly not being anti-Semitic. He himself is a Jew. This is not about the ethnicity of this people. It is about their actions. Because Satan means accuser or slanderer. Satan is the one who loves to shame people and accuse them of the worst. And what is this Jewish community doing, verse 9? They are slandering the Christians, wrecking their reputations, throwing false accusations at them, making them look evil and wicked in the eyes of the Roman authorities so that they'll be arrested and worse. These people think They are Jews, the true people of God. But Jesus sees them clearly. They are acting like Satan, doing his work. We need to see things the way Jesus sees things. And it's so hard, isn't it? Now, now our situation is nothing like what Smyrna was facing. We, We do have many freedoms that we enjoy in this country. It feels harder. I'm sure it will get harder. But nonetheless, we know something of what they faced. And yet it's always so hard, isn't it, to see things with the eyes of Jesus. We see ourselves through the eyes of our circumstance or even through the eyes of what the world says about us. The world says, look, you you Christians, you, you Christians who hold firmly to the teaching of Christ, you are on the wrong side of history. You are the aggressors and the haters. You are the immoral ones. You're the ones who should be pitied following your your make-believe God with all his make-believe rules. We see ourselves through those eyes, don't we? And then those in the world, they they set themselves up as the sensible ones, the kind-hearted ones, the loving ones, the inclusive ones, those on the side of, of progress and truth. And we look at them and we think, yeah, maybe that's right. But Jesus says, no. I see you for who you really are, and I see those opposed to me and to you for who they really are. You are rich, you are righteous, you are mine, you will inherit the world. And those opposed to me and my people and my teaching, they are not righteous and just and loving as they think they are. We need to see what Jesus sees whenever we face opposition. So first, see what Jesus sees. Second, never fear, always believe. 
Never fear, always believe. See, so far the Christians in Smyrna have faced some affliction. They've lost their reputation, people slandering them. They've, They've lost their money. They are poor. And you expect Jesus to say, look, you're, you know, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great, great job. Hang in there. Things are going to get better. That would be what, you know, maybe we'd want to write. Things are going to get better. But he doesn't. Look at verse 9. Sorry, verse 10. Do not be afraid. Now, you should always be worried when Jesus starts a sentence, do not be afraid. Because you know that whatever is coming next, it's going to be something that any normal human being would be terrified of. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. They've lost their money. They've lost their reputation. And next they will lose their freedom and eventually they're going to lose their lives. Jesus effectively says, you are going to lose everything. And he gives them two commands. One, do not be afraid. Two, be faithful. Never fear, always believe. It's a big ask, isn't it? I think maybe, just maybe, I could do the faithful thing. I could keep going with Jesus through, through thick and thin, through good times and through bad times. You know, I, I could stick with Jesus. I think I perhaps could do that. But do not be afraid. Why does he have to throw that in as well? There must be room for some fear, some trepidation. You know, spiders scare me. Pyro and, and midsummer murders, occasionally they frighten me. If I was facing prison and death, fear would seem very likely, I think. Of course, there's there's an inverse relationship, isn't there, between faith and fear, that the more you believe, the less you fear. A few years after this letter to to the church in Smyrna was written, Polycarp became the elder of the church, the the leader, the pastor of the church. And Polycarp knew John. Amazing, we have this kind of link between the the apostles and and I guess us in some ways. He, He knew John And he would have read this letter, this letter that warned of imprisonment and death. And then in AD 155, maybe 60 years after this letter was written, 60 to 100 years after this letter was written, Polycarp was arrested by the Roman authorities. And he was dragged into the stadium right in the heart of the city. The judge said to Polycarp, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. Back then, Christians were considered atheists because they didn't worship all the Roman gods. Away with the Christians, Polycarp, swear that. Polycarp refuses. The judge tries again, swear and I will set you at liberty, reproach Christ, speak against Christ. Again, Polycarp refused, and he said, Eighty and six years have I served him. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And with that, they bound him. They built a fire around him. They set him alight. You will lose your reputation, 
Jesus says to this church in Smyrna, you will lose your wealth, your freedom, and your life, but never fear, always believe, and Polycarp and countless others show us that that is possible. Never fear, always believe. It's possible if you look in the right places. First, look to the hands. Look to his hand. See, any opposition we might face is ultimately in the hands of Jesus. You see that in verse 9? Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Jesus sets the limits on the suffering. He, he sets the limits on the persecution 10 days. Does he mean 10 literal days? Maybe. Or maybe it's just the idea that the persecution is limited. It won't go on and on. Jesus sets the boundaries. Satan can only do to us what what Jesus permits. Any persecution, any opposition we face, it is ultimately in his hands. Yes, Satan might enact the persecution. He might be the one who instigates men and women to turn against Christians. But Jesus determines who suffers and when they suffer and for how long they suffer. Satan is responsible for his doing, his action, and he will rightly face the wrath of God. But Jesus is sovereign. Our persecution is in his hands. And that means incredibly, according to his infinite wisdom, Jesus is able to use the evil of Satan. If Christ wants to strengthen my faith and grow me in resilience, he might well allow Satan to take away my reputation. If Jesus wants me to see how precious he is, then he might well allow Satan to take away my wealth so that I just see how wonderful Jesus is more clearly. Never fear, always believe, because your persecution is in the hands of Christ. But then secondly, look to the hands, look to the future. See what it is that awaits the Christian, verse 10. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The the, the promise, the most wonderful, glorious promise for those who die in Jesus, die because of Jesus, is that they will have a crown, a precious reward. That precious reward is the life itself. Your crown is eternal life. I'm going to come back to this idea in a moment. But, but never fear, always believe, because you look to the future. Third, look to the past. I want to explain something about these letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. That There are seven letters in total. And if you read them carefully, you spot something. They tell the story of the Bible, from creation to salvation. I'll give you some examples. In in the first letter that we looked at, the the letter to uh, the church in Ephesus, Jesus talks about the Garden of Eden. Do you remember that? The tree of life, right at the beginning, the Garden of Eden, how it all started. In the third letter, the next one along, not this one, Jesus offers people the manna of heaven, just like God gave his people manna in the desert when they fled Egypt. We could go on, but I just wanted to see how our letter fits in. That This second letter that we're at, 
It fits in between the first two letters, between Eden and the escape from Egypt. And it refers to that period between the two events, and especially it refers to the life of Joseph, as in Joseph and, and, and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that, that Joseph. And if you know the story of Joseph, then you'll know that he was slandered by his brothers, the, the Jews, the people of God. You'll, you'll know that they imprisoned him and then sold him into slavery like what's happening to the Christians in Smyrna. Joseph lost his reputation. He was falsely accused of rape. Joseph lost his wealth. His precious cloak was taken from him. He lost his freedom, enslaved and imprisoned for years. And figuratively, he lost his life. His family assumed him to be dead. But what happens? If you know the story of Joseph, what happens? The Lord restores him. Joseph is set free. He is made wealthy and he is crowned as the second in command of all of Egypt. So why is Jesus doing this? Why is he getting us to look to the past? Because just as God restored Joseph from a prison cell to the throne, as he restored him from death to life, he will do the same again for us. God knows how to set prisoners free. He knows how to raise the dead and crown his people. He's done it before, and he will do it again. There was a um, a, a guy in a previous church who was a medical student. And um, the thing is with this guy, whenever he sat exams, as far as I could tell, he'd always fail first time round. Fail first time, pass second time round. And he was always good-humoured about it, you know, fail first time, but I'll pass second time, don't worry. And I'd joke with him that if I went into hospital and saw that he was going to treat me, I'd ask him, first of all, have you done this before? And if he says no, then I say, I'm going to find myself another doctor. Fail first time, pass second. But our Lord isn't like that. He succeeded the first time, and he succeeds every time. Getting someone from a prison cell to the crown, he's done it before with Joseph. Getting someone from death to life, he's done it before. Look to the past. Jesus can do this. Never fear, always believe. And finally, look to Jesus. This is where I want to finish. Do you remember we talked about this right at the beginning? What what is it that Jesus emphasizes about himself at the beginning of this letter? Verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. You see, to those being persecuted, to those facing death, what does Jesus emphasize about himself? I am the first and the last, or or the beginning and the end. The one who died and came to life again. So never fear, always believe. It's interesting, isn't it? With Jesus, life and death are the other way round. For us, we would think that life is the beginning and death is the end. We're born, we're given life, that's the beginning. And then looming ahead is this brick wall, death. And that's the end. But with Jesus, look at verse 8. It's not that way. I am the first, the beginning, and I am the end. And that matches what he says next. I died and I came to life again. Beginning is matched with death. 
end is matched with life. Do you see what that means? With Jesus, our death is not the end. It is the beginning. It's not a particularly pleasant beginning. I don't think anybody particularly enjoys the thought of going through death. Little illustration. Death is is like going on holiday. you, You arrive at the airport terminal. The queues, the chaos, the indignity of removing your belt and your shoes and and anything else the security staff want you to to take off, the waiting, the uncertainty. But you see, the the, the airport terminal is not the end. It's the beginning. It's the start of your holiday. Hopefully, you're going to get on a plane, you're going to go somewhere nice. With Jesus, death is the beginning. And, And with Jesus, life is the end. For those who die trusting in Christ, life is the end. What happens after life? Nothing. That's not true for everyone. Verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. You see, for some, for those who die opposed to Jesus, not trusting in Jesus, there is a second death. Death is the beginning, but the second death is the end. A judgment before God that ends with hell. You don't want to be part of that. You don't want that to be you. But for those who are victorious, who trust in Christ to the last, death is the beginning and life is the end. Can you imagine that? What will happen after resurrection life? Nothing. Resurrection life never stops. What what happens after inexpressible joy? What what happens after hearty feasting around the table of the Lamb? What what happens after satisfying, fruitful labor and work day in, day out? What, What happens after laughter and singing and sharing stories of God's goodness around the table of the Lamb? What happens next? Nothing. Life is the end. Laughter, joy, feasting, singing, satisfying work in the presence of God the Father and Jesus his Son. That is the end. T.S. Eliot wrote a poem and the opening line is, In my beginning is my end. In the poem he shows how it's true. Everything that starts, a beginning, ends. In my beginning is my end. But with Jesus it is the other way round. In my end is the beginning. Death is the beginning. And life is the end. Never fear. Always believe. We don't go through what this church went through. And yet, we know something of the hostility, something of the opposition. Jesus says, look, Look to his hands, look to the future, look to the past, and look to me. Never fear, always believe. Remember to quiet and I'm going to pray.
These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that the Lord Jesus comes to us as we need him. He comes with words that we need to hear. And perhaps this morning, some of us really do need to hear these words. This promise of his understanding about what we go through when we suffer for him. His promise and assurance that he will be able to bring us through whatever suffering we face that we might enjoy the crown of life. The wonderful thought that death is the beginning and life is the end. Father, shore up our hearts, comfort us, knowing that with Christ we have a wonderful future, that with Christ we are rich. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.